Great to be with you again this evening, and we're going to continue uh, looking through 1 John tonight. Uh, but before we do, I'd like for us to join our hearts together in prayer one more time. Oh God, we ask for grace and help now to understand your word, Lord. We are humbled at the thought that we can read this letter that was penned by your very own apostle 2,000 years ago. But Lord, we can read it and know that it is inspired of you and that you have something, God, to say to us. So teach us this evening. We pray, and as John taught, teach us to love, God. Teach us to love as you love, Lord, holding nothing back for the eternal good, God of others. And so work in our hearts, God. Sanctify us, move us, make us, reshape us, God, in who you desire us to be. Grant us to be faithful, filled with your spirit, and bold and courageous in our love for you and our love for others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to First John. We're going to be in chapter 4 tonight. Uh, uh, I've referenced this song um, before. It's a quite famous song from back in the day. It says, What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. <laughs> and uh, if you think about it, the song is really profound because it really gets at the greatest questions of the day. Now, we don't think of that song as very profound, but I, I want to suggest to you that it is because, first of all, I mean, it, it gets to one of the greatest questions that we really... We don't know that we have uh, no idea about it, and that is, what is love? <laughs> what is it? That's a good question. And something else that makes the song profound is that whatever this poor fella assumed love to be, he, he, he knew that whatever it was, it was going to end up hurting him. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it is a pretty profound, profound song, and I want to suggest you tonight, if you get love wrong, it will hurt you. It'll mess you up. We got to get it right. And I want to suggest, as John suggests tonight, that if we want to get love right, we got to go straight to the source. That God is love. And love comes from God. So if we want to know what love is, we can't, we don't go to Oprah. We don't go to our feelings. We go to the Bible. We go to God's Word and let Him tell us what love is. And so tonight, uh, I've entitled this sermon, God is love, and so should we. And you'll say, Pastor, that grammatically makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and you're right. But as we go through the sermon tonight, I think you'll understand what I mean when I say God is love, and so should we. And so now, um, let's go to our text in 1 John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, and if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of God. You may be seated. Uh, I'm going to look at three different points concerning this passage. And the first one tonight is going to be this, experiencing God's love produces love. Experiencing God's love produces love. So just remind us about this book. John, uh, a a group within this church community has um, defected, if you will. They have rejected the true gospel, embraced some false teaching and uh, sinful actions due to the embracing of false teaching. They have departed from this community and It seems they're making claims, you know, they're making claims, you know, we're the ones who know God, you know, and they're, you know, and we, we, we know this, we know these truths that you guys are missing out on and it's unsettling these believers and John has provided these tests by which they could test uh, what's true. How, how can I test what these people are telling me? How can I know what's true? How can I know if someone's reliable in what they are telling me about God? Who, who should I and should I not believe when they're talking to me about God? And so John gives these tests as we've talked about. There's the, uh, uh, there's, uh, the moral test and there's the doctrinal test. And then, uh, we're, and then tonight we're going to, John's going to talk about again the love test, the moral test, the doctrinal test, and the love test. And as we see, they're all they're all integrally related. They're all interconnected. And so John, in this letter, he just really just weaves in and out of each one of them uh, as, he, as he kind of talks about each one more and more. And so in this passage, he's, he returns to the love test, and he uses just this incredible language to tell us about what God's love for us is like. You know, that's the heart of Christianity, Right, and it's the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so, the, the love really gets to the heart of Christianity because love is at the core, is at the center of the gospel. 
It is at the center of who Christ is and who he and what he came to do, and therefore it's at the center of who we are as Christians. And so this, of course, it makes sense then that it is the center of John's uh, gospel and of John's letter and this, this uh, important test of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And, and we're just going to walk through the passage now in verse 7. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So it's the love test. If you're a Christian, if you have been born of God, if you have no God, and if you know God, you have to love. You have to. It's the test. If you don't love, as John goes on to say in verse 8, you don't know God because God is love. And so we can see then that love, as we just said, is the heart of, of Christianity. Jesus said that the greatest commandments, that is the that is the sum total of our duty as human beings. The reason why we exist is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why we exist. That's what we were made for. Those are the greatest commandments and that is the sum total of our duty before God. And one day when we stand before God to give an account for our lives, that's what he's going to be looking for. Did you love me? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did you love your neighbor as you loved yourself? And so, if this is the whole duty and responsibility of man, if it is what we were ultimately made for, if it is what God through Christ is restoring us to, then, by definition, a Christian is someone who loves. We must love, John says, for love is from God. And so, we have to kind of think about what John is saying here. Because, you know, you go out, you, you talk to the average person, and they'll say, well, I'm a loving person. So clearly, John means something different. He means something specific. That is that there is a type of love that can only come from God. A type of love, a type of love that is the mark of the Christian. And in the presence of that kind of love in a person's life, we can know that that person is born of God and knows God. And in the absence of that love... We can't know that. And that's what John says in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so if God is love and we say that we know him, then we have to, must love as well. And so what does it mean that God is love? What kind of love must we have that shows that we really know God? John tells us in verses 9 and 10. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That means in this, or in this way, God showed us what his love looks like. And this is it. This is what he did. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does this love look like? What is love? How do we know the love of God? And what, what kind of love is John talking about that we have to have in us 
as the mark of being a true Christian. This is what God love. This is what God's love is. This is how God showed us what love looks like. He sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's love. John says, whole sermons and books and anthologies could be written on that one verse to think about and to dwell on and to meditate upon how great the Father's love for us that He sent His only Son into the world so that, John says, we might live through Him. So think about the implications of what John is saying. First of all, he's saying that if God didn't love us in this way, If God didn't send His Son into the world so that we might live through Him, implication is then that we would die without Him. That's what clear implication. That is, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. We are rebels against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I was... on Twitter, to, uh, I think it was this morning or sometime yesterday or somebody, and somebody posted about hell. You want to get people riled up, you start talking about hell. People don't like to talk about hell. And a lot of people are making all these comments, and, and people are saying, I just don't see how you know, God could send people to hell for, for doing, you know, doing this and this against other people. But one thing that I noticed in lots of their replies is that they were missing one key point. And that is that people were saying, well, how can I go to hell if I just sin against this person over here, do this, this person over here? But see, you missed the whole point. When you sin, you're not just sinning against a person. You're sinning against God. That's the difference. Yeah, if you just sin against me, who am I? It's not a big deal. But guess what? I'm made in God's image. To sin against me is to sin against God Almighty himself. And when you sin against God, infinite, almighty, eternal, holy of holies, who dwells in unapproachable light, God almighty, when you sin against him, you go to hell. Because that's the only just place for someone who would lift their hand against God almighty. In this is love that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, God has made a way to escape the punishment that we deserve. And that way is Jesus Christ because God sent his only son into the world. This word only, when he says only, it's a, it's a, strong, it's a strong word in, in the original language. The NIV tries to bring it out by saying, by saying one and only. God sent, his, God sent his one and only son. That is, there was no other. There was, there was no one else who could be sent. When God, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, he said, bring your only son, your only son whom you love, and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. What God was saying is that he was the only, he was the only one. He was the son of the promise. If, the, if, if Isaac would die, the promise would die with him, unless God intervened. And it's, of course, it's a pointing to Christ, God's only son, God's the only one in all of existence who could destroy the works of the devil, who could right the wrongs that our sin made in the world. The only one that there is, God sent him into the world. To pay the penalty for our sin. 
God's one and only Son, the glory of heaven, God the Son incarnate, in, uh, of whom there is no equal, and whose glory none can comprehend. God sent him into the world, and he took on flesh, and he bore our sins upon himself on the cross. And that's what John says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. This word uh, propitiation has an Old Testament background. It was a word that was used in the Greek Old Testament to translate uh, what they call what what we call the mercy seat of God of, of the Ark of the Covenant that was kept in the tabernacle and in the temple. They used this word. And so this word uh, represents, it represents the place, the place where our sins are atoned for, where God's justice for our sins is satisfied, where our, where our guilt is, is cleansed and washed away and we are brought back into relationship with God. Remember the Jews, they practiced the Day of Atonement. I mean, they, they still uh, honor it today, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that the, the, the high priest, would, the, the, they would have to lay hands on these animals and these sacrifices, uh, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto these animals. And they'd be brought in, they'd be killed, and their blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, uh, showing the blood, pour, putting forth the blood of the sacrifice into the presence of God. There'd be the cloud of incense there in the Holy of Holies, and, and God would see the blood and would count it as atonement for their sins, payment for their sins. But of course we know that in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that, that the, the blood of uh, goat, bulls and rams could never take away sin. It could, they couldn't really take away sin. It was just a provision. It was a provision to show the Jews and to show us that our sin is not just, our sin requires payment. Our sin requires justice. We can't enter into the presence of a holy God without the shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, Hebrew says, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because sin must be paid for. Justice must be dealt. We, God just can't, we, we don't want our judges to sweep law, uh, sin, uh, lawbreakers and criminals under the road. They're, crimes under the rug. We don't want God to sweep our sins under the rug either, but that creates a big problem for us because we're the lawbreakers. We're the criminals. We're the guilty. But God sent his son to be the propitiation, the mercy seat of our sins. That's why when he showed up on the scene, John the Baptist saw him walking by the one whom Jesus said that there's, there's no greater man who's ever lived. And John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation. He's the one who satisfied God's wrath and judgment and justice. Because we couldn't bear to satisfy it ourselves. 
And he stepped in our place and he paid the penalty for our sins and he rose from the dead, conquering the penalty for our sins because forgiven sin has no power. And anywhere and everywhere where the name of Jesus Christ is believed on and his death and burial and resurrection from the dead is trusted in as our hope of forgiveness and salvation, wherever that happens, that person is saved. And they are redeemed and they are forgiven and they are secure in the forever family of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is love, church. You want to know love? You got to look for it there. You want to know love? Look for it in what God did in Jesus Christ. You want to know what love is? It is It is complete and utter and total self-sacrifice for the eternal good of others. That's what love is. God held nothing back when he gave us Jesus Christ. That means that love is the complete and utter and total giving of oneself without reserve and without limit. For the good, the eternal good of others. You want to know what love is? That's what love is. So we, we have to get this right. Love, then, is not just a nice feeling. It involves feelings, but love is not a feeling. Love isn't blindly accepting what someone feels is right. Or blindly accepting what I feel is right. Love is something totally different. Love is self-sacrificing, complete and other self-giving for the temporal and eternal good of others. Love is seeing others' greatest need, real need, most urgent needs, and doing whatever it takes to meet it, even at great personal cost. That's what love is. That's what God did for us. That's what it means that God is love. You see... Sometimes, I mean, here, here, I mean, because we're sinners, frankly, we're just proud. We think God ought to love us. We think God owes it to us to love us. God doesn't have to love us. He was perfectly fine without us. The fact that God loves us is grace. It's a gift of grace. And we have to get love right. Because this phrase, God is love. It's one of the most deepest, profoundest statements in all of the Bible, and it's also probably one of the most used and abused verses in the Bible. Because people will say things like, well, oh, since God is love, then that must mean that God just wants me to be happy, and whatever I feel like is going to make me happy, you know, God's okay with it. That's not love. And think about, and we know that because in the same passage where John says God is love, what does he define love as? As God did what? Gave his only son as a propitiation for what? For our sins. What does that mean that love is? It means that love cares about humanity's greatest problem, which is your sin. So God is love does not, cannot mean that God is indifferent to your sins. It means that God cares so infinitely much about your sin that he sent his only son to deal with your sin because there's nobody else who could do it. 
That's what love is. That, that your sin is so great and God hates sin so much because it violates his perfect goodness and his holiness and his perfect intention for humanity. And it destroys lives and families and marriages and relationships and eternities. And God hates sin so much that he sent his only son to deal with it. And that is love. Not that God ignores our sin, but that he loves us so much to deal fully and finally with it. In his son, Jesus Christ. And and John says, if we know this love, if we know this love that God has given for us, we'll love one another. And so that's point number one there. Experiencing God's love produces love. Experiencing God's love produces love. Number two here is this. God is love, so love is the evidence that God is in us. God is love, so, God is the ev- so love is the evidence that God is in us. We see this in verses 13 through 16. John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. <clears throat> so uh, this, um, this passage here is a little murky. We have to think about it carefully to understand what John is saying here. John is once again drawing this connection as he has throughout the letter uh, there's a connection between the lo- love, the love of God and our personal love for God and others. And then there's, there's a connection between love and then the truth about Christ and then the spirit. Okay, they all, go, they all go together in John's mind. Love, the truth about Christ, and the spirit. All these things are deeply interconnected. And so God has loved us supremely and unsearchably in the person of Jesus Christ. And the supreme way that he has revealed that love to us um, uh, is, is Christ, and that's how we know uh, what it means that God is love. And so what is the connection of the Spirit in all this? Because John brings the Spirit into this in verse 13. He says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. So what does the Spirit have to do with all this? It seems to me that the Spirit, I mean, what John says here is that the Spirit is the way that God lives in us. That God abides in us. That's what he says in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the spirit is the way that we know God lives in us. God lives in us by his spirit. And John has already talked about this in other places. He talked about how the, uh, the spirit is the anointing that teaches us and ultimately convinces us about the truth about Christ. We, we've talked about that in the earlier sermon. And, and so... What is the truth about Christ? He says that in verse 14. It says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the truth about Christ. That's the truth about Christ. The Spirit is the one who comes into our lives and convinces us and and, and testifies to us about that truth. The truth about who Christ is. Uh, uh, And that truth is what John and the other apostles have testified about from the beginning. And that goes back to the beginning of the letter where he talks about that, what we have seen and heard and touched with our own hands and all that. The very first sermon we talk, in 1 John, 
There is a, the message from the beginning about who Christ really is. That is the truth. And it is the Spirit who, who testifies and convinces us and anoints us and teaches us the truth of that, of that claim. And so uh, John uh, goes on here in verse 15 and then says, If we confess that, that Jesus really is the Son of God, then that's how we know that God abides in us. In other words, and, and we could take it a step back and say, that's how we know that we have the Spirit. Because God abides in Him and He in God. So wherever you see God abides in Him, just think Spirit. Because that's how God abides in us is through the Spirit. So, so the point is this. If anyone who truly says from their heart, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. Anyone who truly says that from, the, from a genuine and pure heart of faith... That's the Spirit. That's the Spirit. The only way a person can say that is the Spirit, because only the Spirit can testify and convince us of that truth. If we confess that, that's how we know, John says, that God abides in us. That because we have testified to the truth about Christ. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 puts it this way. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is saying is, or what Paul is saying here, is the same thing that John is saying. If someone says something that's not true, even if they say it's of the Spirit, but it's not true, then it's not of the Spirit. It's false. It's not real. So, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, God told me this, God told me that. Well, hey, if God told you something that's not in the Bible, God ain't the one talking to you. You're hearing something else. If it's what's true, if we, only, if we speak what's true, that's how we know that it's of the Spirit, by way of the Spirit. That's how we know that we have come to know God and that God abides in us. If we confess and believe in our hearts the truth about God, John is saying that that is from uh, the Spirit. And so he goes on um, and he says that uh, God, uh, John concludes here that God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in, in him. And so <clears throat> the flow of thought here from this passage in 13 through 16 uh, to me seems to be this. Remember I said that there was a connection between the spirit, the truth, and love. The spirit, the truth, and love. And they go in that order in John's mind. The spirit, the truth, and love. We know that we are of God, John says, because of the spirit. Who abides in us. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit convinces us of the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That Jesus is the Son of God. That He is God in the flesh. Okay, that's the truth. And, and, and the truth of the gospel is also what? It's also the truth of God's love. It's the truth of God's love. The truth of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the truth. So the spirit within us convinces us of the truth about Christ and the truth about Christ is the picture, is the reality of what God has done in love for his people. And if you really see, if you really see how much God has loved you, It'll make you love too. It'll cause you, it'll cause you to love too. And so that, so in John's mind, to, to kind of restate that, in John's mind, the evidence of how we know God is one long unbroken chain. It begins with the Spirit. 
who convinces us of the truth about Christ, about, what he, about who he is and what he came to do, that he really is the one sent from God, the fulfillment of every promise, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. The Spirit convinces us of the truth of that. And as we believe the truth about the love that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, that he gave his one and only Son, that we might live and not die, when we really believe that and grasp it and it grips our hearts, then that the belief about the truth of God's love for us is going to change us and cause us to love others. It has to. It must. And so there's this unbroken chain in John's mind so that we can trace back then a person who really loves others, a person who really loves others, in the way that John is talking about here, we can trace that back all the way back to the Spirit within them. And that's how we know. That's how we know that a person is of God. So number two there, God is love. So love is evidence that God is in us. And the final thing this evening is this, number three. Knowing God's love casts out fear of God. Knowing God's love casts out fear of God. We see this in verse 17 through 21. John says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay, what does this this mean? Well, John talks about how knowing God's love casts out fear. And then John talks about God's love being perfected in us. And I was, you know, I was thinking and studying uh, on this. As I understand it, it's, it's a little hard to explain. The word, he talks about the love being perfected into us, in us. The word perfected, it's a hard word to translate because it's a word that can mean to finish or to complete or to end or to fulfill uh, or, as we typically use it, to, to bring to perfection. So, so what, by what is our, our, our love perfected or, or, or how is our, our love perfected? It seems to me what John is getting at is he's, he's, talking, about, he's talking about God's love being made complete in us. God's love being made full in us. He's not saying that we'll, that we'll be able to love completely perfectly uh, this side of eternity. What he's saying is that he's really saying something totally different. He's saying God's love, this is how we know that God's love is being fulfilled or brought to its fullness or completed in us. And, and, what, and how do we know if God's love is completed uh, in us? He says that uh, I believe in verse, uh, at the end of verse 17, he says, uh, we'll just read the whole verse again. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. This is what I think that means. The word because could be translated that, and we could, and we could, we can kind of take out that middle phrase for clarity and read it like this. By this is God's love perfected or brought to completion within us. That as he is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? It means we know 
that God's love has been matured and brought to completion in our lives when we live in this world as God does or act in this world as God does. And in the context, it clearly what John is saying is love. So to put it simply, what John is saying is this. We know, we know that God's love is perfected in us when we are loving others in the world as God has loved us. When we are in the world as God is in the world. When we love others as he is. That's, that's when we know that our love has been perfected. When our love is actually working out self-sacrifice for the good of others. That is when love has been completed or fulfilled in us. This idea, I think, uh, is, is the same idea that James has in James 2.22 when he talks about how faith without works is dead. And then he talks about how Abraham, uh, uh, how uh, he speaks of Abraham saying in, uh, in James 2.22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That's the same word. You see what James is saying? I think it's the same thing John is saying. If you say you have faith, but you have no works, your faith, your faith's a joke. It's not real. It's incomplete. It's only when your faith is joined with actual works that you can actually say you have real faith, full faith, genuine faith, fulfilled faith, completed faith. I think John is saying the same thing. This is how we know that God's love is in us, that, our, that God's love is made complete in us. When we not just say that we love people, but that when our love actually produces in us God-like love toward others. That's how we know that God's love is perfected in us. And then John's point is this, and he says that, and he, John's point then is that, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected. In love, this it may be. This may be a little bit different reading than you typically read this passage. And when he says perfect love casts out fear, I think he's talking about our love in the context. When our love is brought to that perfected, in other words, that the the mature, fulfilled place, we have confidence before God in the judgment. We have confidence. We we know that perfect type of love casts out fear. What I think John means is this. When you're walking in a life of genuine, heartfelt affection and love toward others, you, you can sense it in your spirit that, that God is at work in you, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you, when you, you, can just, you, just, you just feel like you just know you're walking in the spirit. You just, God is leading you and guiding you and he's working in you to love others and and even sometimes those situations where it's hard to love, but he's helping you and he's strengthening you and he's working in you. And you can just feel it. And you can just say, and that love is working out in your life. And, and, that, and your love is that, is that perfect, that mature love. And you just know that God is working in you. And when you know that, you get, this, you get a sense of confidence. And you're saying, man, I know, based off this life that God is working out in me, I know that he's at work in me. I know that he's in me. I know that I am his and that he is mine and that I belong to him and that he's working out his life in me. And you have confidence and you, have, and you don't fear judgment because you know that you belong to him because you are feeling him actively work in you. It's that love that casts out fear. That's the love that John is encouraging us towards. But see, when we're not walking in that kind of love, We start to get a little afraid. We start to get a little afraid. 
and say, well, I, I don't know now. I, I'm, I'll be a little, I think I'll be a little afraid if Jesus showed up right now. Why is that? Because deep down, you know, we're not, you're not walking in the love you're supposed to be. And so what is John telling us here? He's giving us both an encouragement and an exhortation. If you are walking in that love of Christ and you feel that union and that fellowship and you feel his, his presence and his spirit surging in you and working love out of your heart, he's encouraging you. Have confidence. Take heart. As you see God working in you, take heart and know that God is working in you. And enjoy that peace and that confidence knowing that you are God and God is yours. But at the same time, he's giving an exhortation. If you don't feel that peace, if you fear, John says, you haven't been perfected in love, what that means, I think, is this. If you have that fear, that means, that means something's, something's a little off. Something's not right. And John's encouraging you, go back to Christ. Look back to Christ. Look back to Him and see how greatly He has loved you. And let that be the motivation for you then to go and pursue that love the way you should be lo- loving others. And as you do that, by the power of the Spirit, God will give you again that sense of saying, okay, now God's working in me. There was something, there were some little things in my life I needed to deal with, I needed to get rid of. But now I'm walking in the faith that is in Christ Jesus and your, that, that perfect love will again cast out fear. Cast out fear. And so let us heed John's, let us heed John's, message here. Let us heed his warning here so that we could have that peace. If there's something hindering our walk with God, something hindering our love for others, God doesn't want us to live in fear, but a healthy fear is going to turn us on the right path. And so if, you, if we sense that, then we need to come back to God and fix our eyes on Christ again and deal with whatever issues is hindering our walk with God so that we can have that peace and that confidence again to stand before God with confidence. And then finally here in verse 20 and 21, John says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so John just reiterates once again the, 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 the thrust and the heart of what he's saying. And he's saying, if, if we know God, we're going to love others. And if you can't love your brother whom you do see, how can you love God whom you can't see? What is, it? What is he saying? It's just another way of saying what he's been saying the whole long, all along. Love for others is the test of if you truly love God. If I can't see you, if we can't see you love others whom you can see, how can we have any confidence that you really love God whom we can't see? Whom you can't see. We can't. But if we can see in each other's lives true and genuine love and affection for others, we can know that God's Spirit is at work in us and have confidence before Him. And so finally, as we close, just a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves. Do we see the evidence of God's love at work within us? Do you see the evidence of God's love at work within you? Have you, expe- have you experienced it? Is it working in you? Is it changing in you? Have you experienced something 
where you just know, you just know I, I didn't do that. That was that was God, or is there or is there something, some kind of block, some kind of stumbling block, some kind of disconnect in your spiritual life and in your life of love for others right now? If there is, my encouragement to you tonight is to look to Christ. Think about. Think about what John is saying here and how God has loved us and how God has shown mercy to us and how God has forgiven us. And just dwell upon how great a thing God has done through Jesus and let that motivate you and remind you and saying, God, if you have loved me this much, I know you can help me love this person in this situation and love this in this situation. I know you can. And let that motivate you. And as God's love is motivating you, you can, you'll know that that's God and not you at work in your life. And so as we close uh, this evening, the final thing I'd like to say by way of application is this. Maybe you've never surrendered to God's love. Maybe you've never experienced the life-changing power of God's love. And maybe tonight, in a way you've never seen it before, you have understood that you're a sinner in need of mercy and forgiveness. But God gave his only son to forgive us of our sins so that we might live, John says. The Bible says that if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, God's own son who is who lived, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who rose from the dead, who lives right now at the right hand of God. And you, if you turn and believe in him and trust in him and follow him, believe me, he's alive. And we follow him with our lives and we trust him. And, we, and it, you, if you follow him and trust in him this evening, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven. That you have, that you'll, live forever with him one day, and that when he returns to come back for all his people, you'll be among that number who has hoped in him, who has trusted in him, who has waited for him, who has loved for him. And when, he, and when that happens, we won't be ashamed because we have loved with his power. And I pray that if that's not you, that it would be you tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth.